Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus we are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Only here in Berlin, the heads of two blocks facing each other, the, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact, were living in one city. They were living door to door and next to each other. And um, because of this, a couple of things were possible in Berlin that could only be done in Berlin. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Bernard von Koska, who is the curator of the Allied Museum in Berlin and the co-author of the excellent book, Capital of Spies. On this episode, we discuss Capital of Spies that takes a look at the history of Cold War Berlin. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles, and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple Podcasts in particular love reviews, and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Please, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, Chris, thank you for inviting me. I was uh, obviously born in Germany in 1962, and then I studied uh, history and political science and uh, public law in Trier in Germany and also in Stafford in Great Britain. And uh, since 1994, I'm a member of the academic staff at the Allied Museum in Berlin. And uh, two years, uh, I was also the acting director of that museum. And uh, doing the job at the museum, I'm a curator and uh, was responsible for a couple of uh, uh, exhibitions like The Link with Home that is dealing with Western Allied radio broadcasting stations, AFN and BFBS and BFN. Um, mission accomplished to Western Allied uh, military liaison missions in Potsdam and also an exhibition on the spy tunnel and who was a Nazi and so and hundred objects uh, Berlin during Cold War. So I did a lot of exhibitions during my last uh, 25 years at the museum and I also published uh, uh, numerous uh, articles on several subjects, usually Berlin blockade, Berlin airlift, but I'm also the co-author of the book uh, Capital of Spies. And um, uh, yes, and that's what we are basically talking about. Yeah, well, can you give us a very, very sort of brief bookshelf summary of what Capital of Spies is about? Well, it's dealing with the intelligence activities of uh, the Western powers, that was my part, as well as uh, the East Germans, that was the part of the German Berlin journalist I was writing that book with. He's my co-author. His name is Sven Felix Kellerhoff, and he's writing for the national newspaper Die Welt for many, many years and published more than 20 books. So he's an expert on um, national socialism and on the GDR. And so uh, we decided uh, to write the book together. I'm doing the one half on the Allies, and he's doing the other half on East Germany. And uh, it's a good overview. Uh, we are dealing with a couple of uh, intelligence operations from 1945 to 1990. And uh, th this uh, 300 pages will give you a good overview uh, what happened in Berlin during the Cold War. And uh, yes, I think some of those things we, are, we will talk about today. Yes, excellent. Well, I think spy books make the best books to read about a city you're going to. And I'm actually planning a trip myself to Berlin later this year. Um, to my uh, shame, I've not really spent much time in Berlin, um, but I'm going to correct that this year. I have spent a lot of time in Vienna, which we'll talk about <laughs> shortly. But um, what is it that drew you to this topic? Because obviously, you're incredibly knowledgeable. You've got a lot of sort of background research, you know, background sort of um, experience being the head of the Allied Museum and things. So what is it that sort of drew you to this topic? And how do you go about sort of researching the, the content for your book? Basically, it was a publisher who a person approached me and asked me if I do not want to write a book about espionage uh, in Berlin. And I said, well, hmm, yes and no. Uh, yes, I can do one half of the book. And no is because I don't know the other side good enough. So that's the reason why we have two authors and why we split that book. And the research is, um, as I said, I have uh, more than 25 years experience in a similar uh, topics for the exhibitions at the Allied Museum. And I had uh, contact uh, to a couple of uh, spies uh, for those exhibitions. And um, their um, things they said and 
the ideas they give me and obviously um, you have a network uh, as a curator in museums and uh, know where whom you can approach uh, to get a couple of documents and ironically enough a lot of uh, information was in the former uh, Stasi documents so the BSTU that is the organization uh, who kept uh, the Stasi files after the uh, GDR collapsed uh, you would find a lot of information in there yeah Excellent. Well, we briefly touched upon Vienna. So Vienna is obviously often talked about as a major spy city, but your book is arguing that Berlin's more significant. So can you talk to us about the sort of similarities and differences between Berlin and Vienna? And we're sort of looking at 1945 to 55, which is sort of the early days of the Cold War. Yes, Berlin was not unique because also in Vienna, the four major occupation forces, the Soviet Union, the Americans, the British and the French, share the town and they all four uh, occupied Vienna as well as Berlin. The only difference in Vienna is there was a neutral zone uh, which did not exist in Berlin. Uh, but the other major difference between Vienna and Berlin is that Vienna was not in the middle of the Soviet zone or later the GDR. So you have a couple of uh, similarities like all four powers uh, occupied it and shared it, uh, divide the city into their individual uh, zones. But the big difference is that Berlin was encapsulated in the Soviet uh, zone, and uh, which became the GDR later on. Uh, but this is a big difference. And Vienna only uh, existed as an occupying, uh, occupied city from 1945 to 1955. And after 55, it was only and exclusively Berlin um, that has this uh, unique status. And the status was unique because only here in Berlin, the, the heads of uh, the two blocks facing each other, the, the NATO and the Warsaw Pact, were living in one city. They were living door to door next to each other. And uh, because of this, a couple of things were possible in Berlin that could only be done in Berlin. And I think we will have a few examples uh, for that later. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely. It, 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 I suppose that close proximity gives a lot of um, opportunity for sort of, uh, what's the word I want? So, well, not just covert relationships, but a sort of um, sort of background, behind-the-scenes diplomacy just based on sort of interpersonal relations. But Berlin was indeed also the, the blueprint uh, for a lot of things uh, that also uh, happened in Berlin. Uh, for example, we have uh, we have knowledge that in uh, Austria uh, the CIA paid um, their informants uh, between one hundred thirty and one hundred or two hundred dollars uh, full time uh, informants, mm -hmm. and we know that uh, this kind of money was also paid in Berlin, and also later on uh, we will learn that the Allies were trying to listen to the Soviet telephone conversation and in the cellars in Vienna they were digging uh, they're, they're breaking walls and digging little tunnels 
and uh, a tunnel of seven meters in Vienna uh, and that was called Operation mm. Silver was also the mm. blueprint for a much bigger tunnel later in Berlin. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you talk to us a bit about those sort of early Western intelligence efforts in Berlin um, and, sort of, you know, sort of prior to the wall being constructed? What information were Western intelligence services sort of looking for and how did they go about obtaining it? When I got into the subject, uh, I was more or less uh, shocked uh, when I noticed or when, when, I, when I read um, that the people active at the time uh, were more or less blind uh, about the other side. Keeping in mind that in 1900, let's say 41, uh, the Americans had no interest in the Soviet Union at all. This is was on the other on another planet. So they had no information about the Soviet Union. When they entered the war, it was not the Soviet Union they were aiming at. It was obviously the Third Reich and Nazi Germany they were aiming at. And the Soviet Union was the ally. So again, after entering the Second World War, they had no aim uh, to get any um, basic uh, intelligence on a for on a on an ally. So then all of a sudden, uh, the end of the Second World War came and uh, all of a sudden in 46, um, at least at least 47, it was obvious that uh, the former allies uh, do not work together that well. And then obviously it was, uh, it was a big question. So what do we know about the other side? And uh, I can tell you that the Russians <laughs> knew much more about the Americans uh, than the Americans knew about Russia. And um, for that reason, the Americans started to employ former people from the German Wehrmacht because the German Wehrmacht had indeed uh, knowledge about uh, military things that were going on in Russia, because the Germans need to know that when they started war against Russia, they need to know who the enemy was. And uh, when the Americans learned they don't know anything about it, they were starting to hire former uh, high-ranking officers of the Wehrmacht who were involved uh, in the intelligence against Russia. And it was, as I said, it was more or less shocking to learn uh, that at the time uh, they don't even have, until 1947, they don't even have uh, a single Secret Service officer in Berlin uh, who can speak the Russian language. Yeah, that was quite shocking when I read that. I was like, wow. <laughs> and, and also that uh, any kind of... Uh, uh, Peace they obtained from behind the Iron Curtain, they could not even cross-check it with other mm. sources because there mm. were no other sources. And also uh, very shocking that uh, even minimum uh, knowledge like, uh, what did they say when they came up with the telephone book or with the latest map of the other side, this, this was a big thing. So uh, actually, you can say the Americans did know very little about the Soviet Union when they were in Berlin and when they noticed that no longer the Germans, but probably the Soviet Union will be the next enemy. Mm -hmm. And the Russian intelligence picture was quite complex. It was so obscure that the CIA found it very difficult to kind of get a clear picture and verify 
the information like you were saying. So can you give us a kind of quick guide to sort of that Russian intelligence op- uh, picture to, during 1945 to 1955? Because there were quite a few agencies and it was slowly amalgamated into one, didn't they? Well, uh, ironically enough, uh, the structure of the Russian intelligence was so confusing that even some Soviet reports were mixing up uh, the areas of responsibility. And also as a result of that, uh, the American side uh, remained completely in the dark when it came to understand who is responsible for what. And so uh, you have, uh, for example, the NKGB, the People's Commissary for State Security, the MGB, the Ministry for State Security, then the KGB, and parallel to those organizations for a couple of years, uh, you have the KE, which is the Committee of Information. And... um, And all of that was very confusing. That was one point. And the other point is that until even many, many years later, uh, they could not put a face to a name. Even if they had the name of a Russian uh, representative of one of those organizations, they couldn't put a face to it. Wow, that's crazy. So that happened to, to that. That's a, that's a funny story when uh, Markus Wolf, which is the spy master of East Germany mm. Uh, mm. in the 70s, and he's from the, the late 50s. He is a high-ranking officer in, in East German intelligence. And for, for nearly 20 years, they know the name. They didn't know his face. They don't had a clue in the 70s how this guy looks like. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah, it wouldn't be like that now, I'm assuming. But <laughs> <laughs> depending on how many selfies it did. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! And the, and, uh, the one other interesting thing as well, like the um, the services sort of started with only like six intelligence officers, and it grew to something like ninety in a very short period. It, it, that, that was quite interesting. Yeah, the the, the Soviet KGB uh, had his. Uh, uh, position in the district of Karlshorst in Berlin. And mm. as, I said, as you mm. said, they started with only six uh, intelligence officers. And then in a couple of uh, years, uh, they they rose it to 90. And um, when the KGB was founded in 1954, it uh, took over full control of uh, this international es- espionage. And... Uh, but, but they still had an internal problem, and the internal problem was that the Soviet intelligence, um, uh, and we learned that during the Berlin blockade, uh, they sent reports back to Moscow who not necessarily fit with the reality. So rather, so two aspects. Rather, they anticipated that those in the Soviet capital wanted to hear. Uh, or on the other hand, they just don't want to risk uh, that they were the ones who present uh, bad news, especially uh, when it comes to jo- Joseph Stalin, who was not known for his kindness. Uh, so that's a problem the KGB had at the time. Yeah, it's very dangerous when your spies are effectively just sending back information where you want to hear it. It gives you a false perspective. And, and unfortunately, I mean, that practice... Um, 
did carry on in the 70s and 80s to some extent as well. I remember reading um, Next Stop Execution by Oleg Gordievsky, and he was saying all the officers are kind of trained to write reports in a very particular way to sort of favour certain views back home. So it's that practice continued on. I think that's a problem <laughs> most uh, intelligence services have, mm. that they have informants uh, who are either writing what they expect the other side or their superiors wanted to hear, or they just make up stories because they cannot deliver. You know, they are getting paid and they cannot deliver. So what are they going to do? Yeah. So just inventing stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a great, you know, the, the famous novel by Graham Greene, Our Man in Havana. <laughs> it's very much like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I met Oleg Gordievsky in Berlin when we had a when we had a, a meeting with uh, we had a, in Berlin at the former mm. listening station Teufelsberg. It was the CIA historical department and uh, the Allied Museum who did a huge uh, intelligence conference. And guys like uh, Oleg Gordievsky were there, Peter Sichel was there, and all the big old names mm. of uh, of East and West uh, espionage were at the Teufelsberg. That was a that was a great thing. Yeah. Excellent! Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, what a what a day! I, I met Oleg Gordievsky myself many many years ago. I, he used to be um, when I was a teenager. I used to work in a supermarket, and he used to be one of my regular customers. So I used to sell him salmon, which seems very spyish. <laughs> <laughs> I also met Kalugin, and Kalugin oh, had a wow, very yeah. interesting story uh, on the Teufelsberg mm. uh, on those early on those early days. Uh, I, I just have to uh, tell that story. Mm, please, yeah. So Kalugin said, when a CIA guy, a young man from the CIA office in Berlin, married, they sent a photographer yeah. to the church, and uh, the story is that he took. A lot of photos from the guys and put them together and said and and who and who are you and who are you so I can give mm. you the images and stuff like this, <laughs> and when they they went into the church mm. and a lot of people approached um, the the CIA guy and said well by the way when the photos from your photographer outside are ready send me uh, don't forget to send me my copies, and the guy said I didn't hire a photographer. <laughs> And that's the way how you put a face to your name, to a name. Yeah, yeah. You you send a photographer to a church uh, because who would a guy working in a CIA office would invite uh, to his um, uh, mm. wedding in Berlin? Mm. Obviously, people who work with him. Mm. So that was a funny story. Yeah. That's brilliant. Oh, I love that. That's <laughs> I did. Um, did they keep the photos and give them to him later on? <laughs> <laughs> No, well, the photographer was obviously from the other, from the KGB, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, everybody was posing for him, mm. and and he said, ah, "Can you put? Uh, can you put? Can you two oh, get together? And you two, and what's your name? And can you please get here?" And uh, and uh, then when they approached uh, uh, the CIA guy and asked him uh, about the copies, and he said, "I, I didn't hire." <laughs> and obviously, the photographer was gone. Was mm. gone when they got yeah. outside. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! That's brilliant! That's brilliant! <laughs> well, um, one of the the first sort of big crises that the Western intelligence had to had to face um, after World War Two was the nineteen forty eight sort of blockade of Berlin, uh, which led to obviously the famous sort of Berlin airlift. Can you talk to us about that period of time and how it affected the various intelligence services? Yeah, forty-eight was a, a rough time in Germany, and um, first of all, uh, military governor Lucius de Clay 
sent a telegram to Washington that was the 5th of March 1948, uh, which is known today as a war telegram, but uh, obviously it wasn't. But for the first time, Lucius de Clay, as a military governor in Germany, had somehow a feeling that um, a war might break out. Mm. And uh, for that reason, uh, the CIA chief, uh, Roscoe Hirnkötter, uh, only a week later, uh, approached his service and he had uh, three simple questions. And mm. the question one was, will the Soviet deliberately provoke a war in the next 30 days? Um, second question, in the next 60 days? And third question, in 1948. And the first two questions, the answer was no, very immediately. And they needed a while to uh, have an answer for the third question, if a, maybe a provoked war would break out in 1948, uh, which in April they say it will not happen. But a uh, couple of months later, uh, the Soviet Union stepped out of the four power um, uh, control council, which uh, is dealing with Germany as a whole. And a couple of weeks later, they stepped out of the Allied Kommandatura, which is dealing um, uh, in with other things for Berlin. So on the administration level, uh, there was no Soviet partner anymore. And because of the currency reform that was done in the western parts of Germany, and that was essential mm. Uh, mm. for the econom economy, and after the Americans and the British uh, combined their zones to the B zone, and um, a couple of months later the French joined in, they knew they knew they need a new currency, uh, which uh, is worth the money. And uh, they uh, had a new currency in the Western powers and it was not planned, but all of a sudden they say the Western forces said they would introduce this new currency also in West Berlin. And that is uh, the reason why the Soviets uh, wanted, first of all, <laughs> I think the simple reason is they wanted to keep the new currency out. Otherwise, they would have had two currencies in Berlin, which they had for a short period because of the blockade. But nevertheless, uh, that was a direct reaction of this new currency reform in West Germany. And that was a Berlin blockade and all land, water and railway lines to Berlin and from Berlin were blocked and no one could get in or could get out. And so the Allies uh, reacted with the Berlin airlift. So concerning intelligence, uh, the stuff with the currency reform happened within days, less than a week. Uh, that all culminated in the blockade. So uh, the intelligence actually ha had no chance uh, to do any forecasts uh, what will happen. And uh, keep in mind that uh, blocking uh, roads is a passive is a passive uh, action. Uh, and uh, I think they were not even prepared to look at those uh, passive activities. More, uh, they were looking more at active uh, things. And uh, but active things during the blockade didn't happen. So the passive thing was to just to block all uh, rail, water, and um, uh, block all ways to Berlin. And so the only way remaining are the air corridors. And uh, as we all know. Uh, that was a huge success 
uh, for the Western powers who were able, after a couple of weeks, uh, they were able to supply uh, all of West Germany and uh, it went uh, better and better. And uh, after a couple of months, they were able to transport more goods via these air corridors than they were before they came in before on the road or on the rail. So it was that was amazing. That was amazing. Logistically amazing was that. Yeah, no, indeed. And there were some opportunities for aerial espionage, which kind of continued on beyond the Berlin airlift. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, during the Berlin airlift, they actually started uh, not only to send planes uh, with uh, uh, food and and uh, coal uh, into Berlin, but they also sent reconnaissance planes mm. in those three Allied corridors to take photographs because all the aerial, uh, most, let's say, uh, 60% of the ground underneath the airplanes was uh, Soviet, uh, the Soviet zone, later became uh, the GDR. Mm. And uh, they did not even land in Berlin. They just fly the corridor, turn around and fly back, mm. uh, taking uh, good photos. So they, they continued that uh, bunch for lunch. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, to Berlin uh, activities uh, approximately twice a week until German unification. Wow. So for more than 40 years, uh, the Allies were flying the corridor and probably for more than 40 years, this is the, the best documented territory in the world. <laughs> <laughs> if you take photos of the mm. same places uh, uh, twice a week, mm. you know, and that's uh, for more than 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> These are a lot of shots. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it was, it's, it sadly sort of reminds me of Ukraine a little bit because I've, I've got this app on my phone called Flight Radar 24 where you can see obviously aircraft activity. And one of the things that you can see is some of the Western spy planes occasionally. So you get things like the drones, the Global Hawks, you get the, the, the rivet joint which is the big sort of spy plane and and so when i was reading about the uh, espionage during berlin airlift i was just like wow you know that practice has uh, got got its roots back to back even then so <laughs> it's fantastic with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We'll move on to the foundation of the two German republics. So you've got the uh, Federal Republic of Germany, which was in the West, and the German Democratic Republic in the East. And in your book, you sort of talk about French and British intelligence activities during this time. Can you talk to, talk to us about what you discovered? And I guess we'll start with French intelligence. Well, the French intelligence uh, had a hard start mm. because uh, they had to go underground uh, during the German occupation of uh, France. Mm. And uh, they have to develop uh, and were founded in January 1946. And it's called the Service de Documentation Extérieure et de Contre-Espionage, SDEC. And they were formed in 46 and um, they had uh, two branches and one branch was based in Saigon, Vietnam, 
uh, to deal with the military problems uh, they had there with their former colonies. Yeah. And later on, they were, you know, they were... when uh, the Allies uh, were flying planes uh, to Berlin, uh, the French uh, did not really take part in this flying because they were in a military conflict uh, uh, down there and uh, needed uh, all their planes. They, they didn't have many planes, but the ones they had, they needed uh, for their conflict in 1948 down in the, in the southeast. And the second uh, base um, of this intelligence service was uh, indeed stationed in Germany in Baden-Baden. And they should deal with the role of the French uh, in the coming uh, Cold War in Europe. And uh, as the British and the Americans and the Soviets uh, actually in the very early post-war years, all four intelligence services were aiming at uh, German scientists. French did the same. But later on, I have to outline that at the end, uh, the Americans and the Soviets were the most successful yeah. uh, ones doing that. Yeah. But nevertheless, the French were also trying that, as well as the British, who had the longest history uh, concerning um, uh, political espionage organizations that went uh, well long back. But uh, after World War II, the SIS uh, conducted operations in, in, in uh, West Berlin, and uh, again, they were trying to uh, aim at German scientists and, and to persuade them uh, to come to Great Britain and work for Great Britain. And uh, to some extent, uh, they were successful. I think at the end, uh, in, by November 1949, the British had convinced at least 332 scientists to leave the Soviet yeah. zone yeah. and go not especially to Great Britain, but at least uh, in their uh, zone in West Germany to work for them. And having these 332 in mind, uh, I said the Americans were more successful they were able to uh, persuade approximately a thousand scientists uh, to come and go into the United States. And, and the most prominent figure is probably uh, Werner von Braun, uh, who became uh, the deputy of the NASA, which is incredible because he, had, to be honest, Werner von Braun was a, was a Nazi. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's face yeah, it. Yeah, he was in the SS, wasn't he? he was... <laughs> and he was working for the regime and doing everything he could. And um, yeah, that gives you an idea um, how denazification worked mm. Uh, mm. after Second World War, yeah. when everybody was aiming for the knowledge mm. um, and not not regarding what they did before. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you know what, I don't know why it popped into my head. When I traveled to America in the 90s, you used to have to fill in this form, and on there, you have to declare if you were a former Nazi from World War II. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, for some people, that was a problem. <laughs> I don't think that Werner von Braun filled in that form. No, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. I mean, it's it's, it's so is it basically? I mean, just for maybe some audience members who are not hundred um, percent up on what German scientists were specialists in, but Werner uh, Werner von Braun was uh, obviously the rocket specialist, wasn't he? He was yeah. the man behind yeah. the the V one and V two rocket. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and not not him, 
not he alone. He mm. had a couple of co-workers, mm. and a couple of them just just uh, went with him to United States, and he needed those uh, guys he worked with at Peenemünde yeah. for the V2, uh, as well as mm. now then in America mm. uh, for their uh, space system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and obviously jet engines as well, and I, you know, the the sort of ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile technology, I'm sure, has its roots in in this sort of research for both the Russians and the Americans. Well, the the Russian approach mm. uh, for this, these scientists uh, was uh, different. Mm. Ah. They do not uh, persuade uh, those people; mm. they just collected them, uh, plus their families. And put them into uh, trucks, put them into trains, and transported them to Russia. And uh, they had to work there between uh, three and five years uh, for Russia yeah. in the scientific field. But after that time, they were free to leave the country, go back to uh, East Germany or wherever they want. But this was, uh, yes, uh, it wasn't not a persuasion, let's say, by money or by freedom or by freedom of science, whatever you have. So they just collected them, picked them up, including their families, uh, brought them to Russia and uh, kept them there for uh, between uh, two, three or five years. And then they were set free and uh, they could go wherever they want to. But, you know, indeed, a couple of the scientists stayed after that time in Russia. Uh, an another another good bunch went back to East Germany. Yeah, yeah. Did any ever make it back to the West and and sort of get turned? They they could, mm. they could. Yes, mm. there were some uh, who could do that. You know, if you were in East Germany in the fifties, late fifties, it was not a problem at all mm. uh, to go to West Germany. Uh, indeed, uh, we have uh, after the uprising in East Germany in nineteen fifty three, we had an incredible flow of refugees yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about ukraine refugees mm. uh, nowadays mm. of course mm. but uh, i just want to give you one figure uh, after the uh, east german uprising in 1953 that was uh, you know shut down by russian tanks uh, literally more not more than but nearly uh, 300,000 east germans came to west berlin not to west germany into the city of west berlin in one year so remember what uh, incredible uh, uh, stroke for the city of west berlin that was coping with 300 this is 10% more than 10% of your population comes as refugee in just in one year and uh, we all have this uh, refugee problematic uh, in Europe uh, in 2015 in mind. Now the Ukraine refugees that were distributed to several countries, to Poland, to uh, Yugoslavia. And, and a lot of people are taking uh, those refugees, Germany as well. But those 300,000 exclusively came to West Berlin, which is a major problem also for the Allies. Mm. because uh, the intelligence were trying to interview every single refugee. They had a, an office and all s refugees had to go through those intelligence uh, allied offices. And in there, they were asked uh, what they did in East Germany, uh, if they had any relation um, to the Russian forces whatsoever. And if they had... 
uh, the allies were trying to persuade them to go back on the same day before it was noticed they were missing. And believe it or not, uh, in quite a couple of cases, they were successful and, and sent those, uh, I would say, stupid young men uh, back to his Germany to work for them as, you know, quote, agents. But the fate of those people who went back uh, is um, usually uh, has no happy ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, Bridges spies for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there were no trained spies, mm. nothing, you mm. know. Uh, mm. And after the, the war was erected, mm. uh, they even had no contact to any of the leading officers in West uh, Berlin. Uh, so that's that's uh, one thing. Um, uh, this uh, refugee flee of refugees is connected uh, to intelligence. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we learned later that uh, quite a few prominent um, spies came as a refugee to West Germany. So people who later worked in uh, West German administration, uh, stuff like this, in, uh, and also in, in uh, big uh, companies and firms, they came as a normal refugee in the 50s, uh, were flown out from West Berlin to West Germany, uh, had, had the job there and were good in their jobs, were promoted and... Uh, only after the collapse of uh, East Germany, uh, we noticed that uh, quite a few of those refugees in those uh, early 50s uh, were working for, for uh, as, as, as spies, actually. Yeah. yeah. One really interesting uh, piece of spy history that was uh, unique to Berlin is the, the Berlin Spy Tunnel. Um, and you also have a connection to a uh, a special documentary that was made about the Berlin spy tunnel for George Blake's 90th birthday. Um, do you want to talk to us about both the, the tunnel and your uh, experience with this Russian documentary? Well, the Berlin spy tunnel, I would uh, call um, a perfect example for espionage activities uh, in Berlin. It, it, has all, it, it has it all. <laughs> And uh, starting with the historical aspect, uh, I told you that Vienna was a blueprint uh, for uh, listening to um, Soviet communication. And they thought what's possible in Vienna is obviously also possible in Berlin. And they were looking for a place from where they could dig a tunnel from West Berlin to East Berlin, mm. knowing exactly... Uh, where the telephone lines in East Berlin are because uh, the Soviet Union is using the old um, old German Reich uh, telephone uh, communication lines. So they knew exactly where they had to tap in. So that's the plan. And so that, what they did, um, that's what they did. And the, uh, the British who did um, the listening in Vienna uh, brought in the Americans into the boat for simple reason. Uh, the operation was so expensive that the British could not afford it. Yeah, uh, you know, Great Britain at the end of the Second World War was uh, on the uh, on the on the knees economically mm. on the knees, mm. and uh, you even had bread. Uh, we even had uh, food rationing until the early 50s, I guess. Yeah, yeah. my dad used to talk a lot about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and so obviously they could not pay for such an expensive mm. operation mm. that started in 1953. 
and the overall uh, costs were you know you will laugh now it was it was uh, 6.7 million dollars yeah <laughs> which to today is a joke but at the time that was a lot of money mm. for a, for a single operation in west berlin uh, you need to spend 6.7 million dollars so the americans were willing to do that so it was a combined operation and uh, unfortunately really in great britain not more than a handful of people knew about it mm. and one of those handful was unfortunately Uh, a guy uh, who was taking minutes yeah. uh, for one of those meetings, and that was George Blake. <laughs> and uh, what nobody knew at the time is uh, that George Blake uh, was uh, working for the Russians for the KGB. Mm. Mm. And a couple of the very first meeting in '53, George Blake met his leading officer, General Kondrachov, uh, and he told him about the, the tunnel. And uh, so the KGB knew about the tunnel even before it was built yeah <laughs> in the in the planning phase they knew about it and then uh, the kgb decided had to decide what to do with the tunnel so they had two options either to protect their new top spy in the british administration which is george blake or uh to to ruin the tunnel or the plans for building the tunnel and they decided to protect their new top spy so uh The tunnel was planned. Uh, it took them more than a year to build the tunnel. And the tunnel was five meters deep. It was more than 400 meters long. Yeah. And uh, the aim were three major telephone lines at the end of those 400 meters. And uh, this technical bit uh, was done by British uh, specialists and experts. Uh, they did the, the tapping of the of these telephone lines and uh, after that they had access to nearly 300 single uh, telephone uh, numbers wow. and the conversations in there mm. the tunnel was in operation for 11 months and during those 11 months they um, taped more than 400,000 telephone conversations mm. Mm. even though the russian knew about it they did not put false information through the tunnel Uh, because uh, I, I had to learn that from those intelligence guys. Uh, General Kondrachov uh, said at the museum, it's far too complicated to produce good false information. Yeah, especially to that volume, I guess. You talk about 300 yeah. phone conversations. <laughs> There's a lot of people. <laughs> exactly. So they said the risk is too high. And as soon as, as they know there's fake news going through the tunnel, mm -hmm. they, knew, they knew there is a mole somewhere and then um, they risk uh, George Blake. So that's an, not the thing they were they're doing. But, but even though the tunnel uh, was um, find, found mm. uh, on purpose and it was exactly the date when Nikita Khrushchev was on his first state visit to Great Britain. Yep. <laughs> They were talking about the Suez crisis, um, a really hard military crisis at the time. And uh, Khrushchev said, uh, discover the tunnel when I am in Great Britain. That gives him obviously a bit more uh, space uh, for negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what happened after the tunnel was discovered in all the newspapers, uh, exclusively, exclusively, the Americans were blamed for the tunnel. 
And that is because Nikita Khrushchev said, uh, discover the tunnel when I'm in Great Britain and blame the Americans. And we even have an original Soviet document uh, for East uh, German administration in Russian. Document is in Russian. And, and the document says exactly what the East Germans had to do when they discovered the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And one point is that they should exclus exclusively blame the Americans for the tunnel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that has a background. Is that, uh, as I said, Nikita Khrushchev is in Great Britain at the time. Yes, and then uh, after the tunnel uh, was, um, was, was found, uh, the CIA was pretty certain that was, that was pure accident because at, at the time it was raining and one line was very unstable and uh, they were so clever that technicians they sent uh, to the area to find um, uh, the, the broken telephone cable while mm. it was uh, raining so hard. Mm. They had no clue. They were digging and digging and digging and after a while they, they, they found the tunnel. And they had some microphones, the CIA had microphones inside of the tunnel so they can hear what the technicians were talking. And obviously the technicians had no clue what what was this steel steel tube. Yeah. Mm. It was a listening station, underground listening station. So they informed the Soviet officers and, and back and forth. And everybody who, who was coming well, had no clue what that is. And that um, on the other side, on the CIA side, um, that um, gave the impression that indeed uh, the tunnel was not found on purpose, but uh, it was pure accident that they found the tunnel. Mm. But later, later, many years later, uh, when George Blake confessed that he was a spy for the KGB, it was obvious that he or he he told the British uh, that he was uh, the mole and that he told the KGB about the tunnel. And mm -hmm. uh, after that, the tunnel uh, had not a good reputation because everybody thought false the false thought that a false information was sent through the tunnel, which indeed did not happen. So then Blake was imprisoned. He managed to escape out of uh, the prison in Great Britain. He fled to uh, East Germany. In East Germany, uh, he went to uh, Russia. In Moscow, he was uh, regarded as one of the heroes of the KGB until his uh, he, he died uh, very uh, 50, 95 or something, or 96 even he got. Uh, he lived as a persona grata of the KGB. He was always regarded as one of those heroes. And that is the reason why Vladimir Putin him, himself said he wanted to see uh, a history documentary on George Blake and what he did for the Soviet Union for his 90th birthday. And he wanted to show it on this very uh, well-known first uh, Russian program. So a TV team from Russia came to Berlin and they hired me and I showed them everything. And after three days, they said they learned much more about this tunnel operation uh, than they learned in Moscow because they had no access to any kind of archive in Moscow. Mm. 
And that was amazing for me. You know, how, how can they do a documentary on George Blake without having any access to any archive in the Soviet Union? Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't even have spy books in, in Russia. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And um, I'm assuming you haven't met Putin or, or uh, George Blake, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, George Blake, I haven't met. Uh, he, uh, but he gave a couple of uh, interviews and uh, he nearly turned blind uh, when he's 90 and uh, he is still he, George Blake did not work for the Soviet Union and the KGB because he needed money but because he thought he was working for the wrong side so he's more or less a socialist or even a communist And and uh, he remained that until uh, until his uh, until his death. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was in was it in um, Korea? Wasn't it the Korean War? He turned. I think. That's right. Yeah. He was imprisoned during the Korean War, and uh, during his imprisonment, he, for himself, he decided he's working for the wrong side, and then uh, via the North Korean, he offered his service to the Russians. And uh, ironically, when he came back to Great Britain a couple of years later, he was even sent to Berlin because he was a genius uh, concerning languages. He could speak five languages fluently, including Russia and Russian. And uh, he was sent to Berlin in the 50s uh, to, to, to recruit uh, East Germans as agents. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so funny, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, that's the reason why George Blake was even in in uh, stationed in in West Berlin uh, for uh, several months there. Thank you for everything about the spy tunnel. Was there anything else you wanted to add about the spy tunnel before we move on to the Berlin Wall? Well, at the Allied Museum, uh, for many, many, many years, uh, we had the only original segment mm. uh, of the spy tunnel. We digged it out uh, in in Berlin. Well, after the uh, German unification, when they built a housing area at the place uh, where the spy tunnel was. And uh, yeah, so um, that, that was amazing. And then we digged out another piece. And uh, with this uh, historical information, we were in the newspapers worldwide. So uh, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, Italian newspapers worldwide, because we discovered uh, a couple of other original pieces of the spy tunnel very deep in uh, former East, uh, East Germany. And the reason for that is when the East Germans wanted to get rid of the spy tunnel, we thought, honestly, and, and I know the CIA thought as well because I have contacts there, and they had no clue about uh, the spy tunnel being uh, rediscovered in, in East Germany. So what the... the East Germans did when they want to get rid of the spy tunnel. I told you it's 400 meters, uh, a very uh, st a steel tube with a diameter of 1.9 meters. So a normal man could go through the steel tube. And uh, this is for 400 meters. So you have a lot of steel there. And uh, what they did, they reused it as shelters for their maneuvers in the forest. <laughs> So pieces of the steel tube for three and four meter segments were cut into they were they cut those pieces and they dig 
them into the forest and use them as um, headquarters uh, for their maneuvers in the forest, for the pioneers. So all over, and they sent those steel segments all over East Germany. Mm. <laughs> Talk about recycling, that's very good. And we had, we had, we had, honestly, we had no clue. CIA had no clue. Allied Museum had no clue. We all thought uh, that uh, East Germany probably melted these tons and tons and tons of good steel and, and reused it for their, their own purpose. Uh, they did reuse uh, it, but for military purpose, uh, be, being, uh, Uh, military uh, stands for um, their pioneers and that was an incredible um, message and that came in 2006 uh, I guess mm -hmm. we got this information yeah. Yeah. wow wow um, is some of it in the spy museum in Washington now I've lost track of where those bits are It is. Mm. Everybody wanted to have a segment of uh, this mm. uh, spy tunnel but we, we, we just we just had two huge pieces and we didn't want to give one away but when we discovered that in east germany there are more original segments of the spy tunnel digged in the forest uh, we digged some out uh, for the spy museum in washington indeed so besides the allied museum in berlin the spy museum in washington is the only museum in the world uh, that has another huge piece of the original spy tunnel in berlin yeah Excellent. Well, two places to go and check it out. So that's brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's um, let's look at the Berlin Wall. So the the next major hurdle for Western intelligence and the citizens of Berlin was the the Berlin Wall being constructed in 1961. Can you talk to us about this and sort of what it um, how it sort of created uh, challenges for Western intelligence? The Berlin Wall was a, was a game changer. Um, keep in mind that uh, before the wall was erected, mm. every person in West Berlin as well as in East Berlin could cross the border anytime as often as they wanted to. So that was no problem at all. So people co could go backwards and forwards um, whenever they want. You, you can meet people in the other part of the city. You can talk to people in the other part of the city. You can meet uh, uh, in, in the public. Uh, you can meet uh, secretly in a forest, wherever you want to. Obviously, you can imagine that this is uh, the land of milk and honey uh, if you are working in the intelligence business. But when the wall was erected, this was completely over. Yeah, so East Germans, no way for any East German uh, to go from East to West again. And it was also pretty complicated, uh, or I wouldn't say um, impossible, but unusual for uh, military personnel to go to East Germany, uh, they go there for shopping, they go there for sightseeing, they're going there in the opera, but not for several days. Uh, that would be suspicious. Um, and um, if you leave the group and you will be followed, it's uh, very risky. If if uh, if you go there in your and you have to go to East Germany in in your uniform, 
Yeah. And obviously, if you're going in your uniform, it's easy to, you know, to recognize yeah. you, yeah. easy to follow you. And then you risk uh, the risk, uh, the life of the guy you're going to meet with. So that makes no sense. So Berlin Wall was the game changer. But the Berlin Tunnel, a couple of years before in 55, showed already that they transformed uh, intelligence work from human intelligence, uh, which is meeting your opponent in the West or in the East, to um, the technical intelligence, uh, which the tunnel was, by listening to the telephone conversation. And um, that's uh, what happened in the years that uh, are coming. They were spending much more money into technical devices, into listening stations like the Teufelsberg, like Marienfelder, like at Tempelhof and in Gatau. You have a couple of listening stations uh, that were able to listen deep into Moscow, into the Soviet Union. And um, this, uh, they spent a lot of money uh, into that because uh, the human factor uh, was no longer that important because of the Berlin Wall. That's indeed a game changer. And talking about uh, intelligence, um, yes, indeed, uh, they were surprised somehow. There had been hints and there had been um, messages by individuals. But we know all that now, after months, years and decades later, uh, it is obvious that there had been hints that something would happen. And even the political leaders knew that I, I mentioned all the refugees from East Germany to West Germany. And even uh, the American leader knew, um, Kennedy, that something will happen and that the East Germans had to stop this uh refugee um you know bleeding out uh, bleeding out east germany it's it's all the young people that are leaving not the old ones uh the young people you need for the future of of uh, the country those are the ones who are leaving and everybody knew they had to stop this somehow uh, but uh, i think they were not aware that it was so uh brutal and and so long lasting like the berlin wall yeah what effect did the the berlin wall have on on uh, russian intelligence did it have any effect well more or less the same uh, like uh on, on the western intelligence uh, the exchange of uh of people going back and forth going from the east to the west from the west to the east was uh, only possible for diplomats uh, and as I said, for individuals in uniforms, and uh, it, it also limited uh, the possibilities of the other side. But I think uh, the benefit is definitely on the western part. Uh, sorry, on on the eastern part, because they were able to stop this um, uh, refugees from going from east yeah. to west. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot more kind of clamped down. So yeah. Bernard, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Well, I mentioned I'm uh, working at the Allied Museum and um, our webpage is uh, bilingual. So uh, whoever wants to click in uh, the webpage of the Allied Museum in Berlin is uh, free to do so. 
And uh, also I mentioned uh, the book, it's called Capital of Spies and uh, Casemate is the publisher. And uh, as I said, it is a, is, a, is a good overview to get an idea Uh, what kind of activities happened uh, in Berlin, not only in the Western part, that is that's, that was my part, but also in East Germany with the uh, Staatssicherheit and the activities uh, the, um, that were going on there. So it's a good overview and whoever is interested in a single story then can go further and, and see if there are any books, especially on that one subject. But we were trying to present a larger scale and a better overview. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Chris. listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 